This audio recording is of our regular Sunday service, August 12th, 2018, at Restoration Road Church in Snohomish, Washington. The speaker is Andrew Pack. More information can be found at rdchurch.com. Verses 4 through 25. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him, from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip, and seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord, that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. This is God's word. You all may have a seat. Good morning. It's good to see you all. How are you? Good. We'll be in the, uh, the words inspired by the Spirit written by Luke in Acts chapter 8, uh, starting in verse 4, which puts us about here. Uh, please join me in prayer. Uh, King Jesus, this is your day and we are your people. Uh, you move in history and nothing can get in your way. You move with us. You move without us. You move in spite of us. You move in hard places like Samaria. You move in hard places like the state of Washington. Your gospel will not be thwarted. And and nothing, nothing gets in your way. And so I pray, Jesus, uh, that we, whatever we bring in here today, whatever sin we think is too big for you to have paid for or to help us deal with, uh, I pray we'd repent. I pray for, for any, any challenge, any place we need to share the gospel, anything we need to do that seems too big that we would repent, knowing that you are the God of the universe and nothing is impossible for you. This church is an impossibility in the world and you're moving. 
your church, your big C church, is an impossibility uh, in the world, and you are moving. So thank you, Jesus. We praise your name. Uh, we pray for the brothers and sisters meeting at all the Bible-believing churches throughout our county and our state today, that you would bless them, you'd keep them, you would guide them, uh, and pray you would glorify your name mightily today. We love you, Jesus, and pray these things for your glory and for our joy and in your name, Jesus Christ. Amen. Uh, so the great reformer John Calvin observed that God moves with us, without us, and in spite of us. Now that shouldn't be a surprise for us. We have a relational, covenantal God who uses us, who works with us, who leads us, who guides us, and uses us in His service. We have an omnipotent God who doesn't actually need us to do anything. Not only that, we have an omnicompetent God that when we are doing the things we ought not do or not doing the way He wants us to do them, He will still accomplish uh, His purposes. But none of this is really a surprise for us when we look at the giant scope of human history. If you're familiar with the Bible, if you're not, we're so glad you're here. Uh, here is all of the Bible in about 30 seconds. Uh, we have a God who made everything good. He made it all for His glory. He made it to make much of His name. He made people to be in relationship with Him, to know Him, to love Him, and they rebelled against Him. Now God being omnipotent, omnicompetent, and omniscient, this was not a surprise for Him. He had a plan before the foundations of the earth, which He reveals to them to redeem them, to save them, and to save humanity through one we will find out is Jesus. Between the coming of Christ and there, he actually calls a people to himself to be a lighthouse to the world, to show the world about who he is, to be in relationship with him. But like our first parents, Adam and Eve, they break that relationship too. But he is gracious to them. And he sends his son, Jesus. Jesus comes to save sinners from death to life. And the good news of the gospel shows us that Jesus lives the life we were supposed to live. He does all the things that we were supposed to do and haven't. He didn't do any of the things we're not supposed to do when we have. Right? That is Jesus. Not only that, He dies on the cross to save us. To pay the price for all of our sins so we can be in a right relationship with God. So that we can belong to God and know God and love God. And there's nothing we can do to earn it. And if you are like me and you know your own life, you can see areas where God has moved with you. Where He's moved without you. And frankly, if you're in here today and He has saved you, He's moved in spite of you. Yes? Well, at least some of you. It's all right. It's the cozy weather. We feel like Washingtonians. We're supposed to sing with our hands in our pockets and not sing and show up late for church. That's what we do here, right? That's our culture. You don't have to do any of those things, by the way. Uh, so today we're turning to the book of Acts here in uh, verse 4. And what we're going to see today is that God moves despite and then just go ahead and fill anything in that particular blank. God moves and accomplishes His purposes and works in history and works in the lives of people and works to glorify His name. Period. That's what He does. That's why we call Him God. And so here we are. We're in Acts. We're in chapter 8, starting in verse 4. This is a history. Uh, this is a narrative, right? So it's a story. And when we're, when we're in this, we need to know it's not just a history and it's not just a narrative. It's a theological history. Theological meaning the study of God. And so what do I mean by that? Luke isn't just writing a memoir. Memoirs are great. 
Uh, I love reading memoirs. You might love reading memoirs. It's wonderful to read, you know, the guys who were at D-Day or, you know, the journals of people from the Civil War. These things are fascinating and wonderful. But this isn't just a journal. He has a point in writing the book of Acts, and he is showing us the movement of God through his Son, in his church, by his Spirit, through his Word. And so everything we do carries us along those purposes to make much of the name of Jesus and get the the word out to the ends of the earth that Jesus saves sinners by his grace and his mercy. And if you're in here today and you're not a Christian, this is what you need to know. This is what we believe. This is fundamental to who we are. Now, the interesting thing about a narrative, as we'll see, is it's not like one of Paul's letters. And here's what I mean by that. You're in Romans. You're in chapter 3. And he says, Romans 3.23, all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. Okay, doctrinal truth. But down in Romans 3, verse 26, he says, and Jesus is just in the justifier. And he lays out the gospel and he shows us the truth of who God is and how he's working in the world. And he goes kind of point by point in a real straightforward way. So a narrative, because it's a narrative, and he's actually telling the story, doesn't have those kinds of points. And so we're going to see a few things happen here today. And what we're going to do is we're going to work through the story And then we're going to draw from that story, uh, we're going to draw out from that story what Luke is showing us that God is doing. And then from there, we'll have a bridge to our own life and see how God might be working in similar ways in our lives. So here we are, we're in Luke, pardon me, we're in Acts chapter 8 in verse 4. Now, those who were scattered, we'll talk about those who were scattered in a second, went about preaching the word. Russell preached for us last week. Uh, Well, for you all, I I was out preaching somewhere else. Uh, but he preached for you all last week about Stephen and what God was doing with Stephen as the narrative, is, the history is moving along, right? So these people who are scattered are the same people who are now losing friends for the gospel. These are the same people who are being persecuted and thrown in jail uh, for the gospel. And now their response, at least the ones we're going to see here, is not to run and hide. It's to get to work. What work did they get to? Preaching the gospel. Preaching the gospel. Now, a brief word on this idea of persecution. Persecution is a funny thing because in our Western imagination, one, uh, most of us, uh, unless you've probably been on the mission field or in a real serious place, uh, have not necessarily experienced persecution. You may have, so I don't want to get in your experience and tell you how to feel, but most of us have not really experienced persecution. We kind of romanticize Christian persecution because there's so many faithful accounts of people in the early church and even here in Acts that when persecution comes, they stand up for the gospel. When old man Polycarp is in his 80s and there's a Roman governor are just saying, please, just renounce Jesus. You're old and I don't want to feed you to lions. It'll be bad for everybody. Just light a little incense to, to Caesar and we can move on with this whole horrible thing. Polycarp does not respond, right? He's, it's actually a great letter. Things happen like the, 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 the guy who's in charge, the governor says, away with the atheist. And he looks out at, Polycarp looks out at the giant crowd of people who don't love Jesus and he says, Away with the atheists, right? That is his approach when facing persecution. And he says, Jesus has been faithful to me my whole life. Why wouldn't I be faithful to him now, right? And we look at these and say, look at what happens when persecution happens. Something else happens when persecution happens. People scatter. People cower. People hide. People protect themselves. So persecution 
does two things. God sometimes uses it in this amazing way, and sometimes it actually works. So, so don't just think, oh, cool, their friend Stephen got, had the rocks thrown at him until he died, and now they're just really excited and jazzed to go preach. Like these are people who are picking up their stuff to go preach the gospel. Maybe even were there. I mean, some of these people were probably there when Stephen is killed. They understand something that we must understand as a church. The preaching of the gospel is life and death. There is nothing more important than the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Now Luke singles out Philip. Verse 5. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. I think it's interesting he said preach the word and he makes clear they're preaching to them about Jesus. What is the content of the preaching? Jesus. Right? That is the content of Christian preaching, whether you're in Genesis, Revelation, or anywhere in between. Jesus. Okay? Now, why does he single Philip out? Well, because he's in Samaria. We have to talk about Samaria. Uh, this is one of those things that if you are a first century Judean or Jew, that you'd say, oh, that's scandalous. Oh my, he's in Samaria. But we think Samaria, Samaritan. There's that good Samaritan and everybody likes him. And now we name ministries like Samaritan's Purse. Oh, Samaritans must be good and awesome. The reason why Jesus uses the Samaritan and the good Samaritan parable is because a first century hearer would have said Samaritan is equative to scumbag or fill in some other thing there. He's being scandalous when he talks about Samaritans. And I'll show you why. Go with me, if you will, to 2 Kings 17, verse 21. You can get a lot of things from commentaries and biblical background histories, Bible dictionaries, all those things. They're good and they're important. But you also need that God has given you His Word, and in His Word, uh, He explains pretty much everything we need to know to make sense of anything. Because if you'd read 2 Kings 17, and you heard, him, you heard that Philip went to Samaria, you might say, huh, that's very interesting that God is doing that. We're in 2 Kings, we're in 17, we're in verse 21. When he, that's God, had torn Israel from the house of David. We don't have time to get into that, but everybody's doing wrong things. They made Jeroboam the son of Nebat king. And Jeroboam drove Israel from following the Lord and made them commit great sin. So, quick geography lesson. North-south. Uh, Judah's in the south. Two tribes. Israel's in the north. Ten tribes. Used to be one country. Solomon gets into some trouble. His kids get into more trouble. There's a civil war. It splits Israel in the north, Judea in the south. It used to all be Israel, or pardon me, Judah in the south. The people of Israel walked in the sins of Jer as the Jeroboam did. They did not depart from them until the, the Lord removed Israel from out of his sight. So they have been given a chance. You read the prophets. Prophets do tell about the future sometimes, but when you're reading the prophets, the thing you need to know about the prophets is this. Prophets show up to say, this is what God says, and this is what you're doing, and they're different. Please stop. And when the people say no, God usually says, can you try that again? And usually gives them some chances. But when the people say, yes, you're right, we're sinners, we're sorry, everything is right again. Right? That's what the prophets do. So, so Israel gets all these prophets, lots of them. And they say, no, we're going to keep worshiping pretend gods. Israel out of his sight. And so he says, all right, fine. We're going to deal with you. As he had spoken by all his servants, the prophets. So Israel was exiled from their own land 
to Assyria until this day as this, this book is being written and they just disappear. We don't know where they went. Right? They're scattered. Now listen, verse 24. And the king of Assyria brought people. So Assyria now owns that north part. The king of Assyria brought people from Babylon, Cuttath, Abba, Hamatha, Sephravim, and placed them in the cities of Samaria instead of the people of Israel. So this is, this is effectively what Rome is going to do to Judea uh, in about 130 BC, or AD, uh, after the close of the New Testament. And they took possession of Samaria and lived in its cities. And at the beginning of their dwelling there, they did not fear the Lord. Therefore, the Lord sent lions among them, which killed some of them. Now, what's interesting here is his plan is not a repentance plan. They're acknowledging because they're old-timey pagans. There are all these different gods in all these different places, and Yahweh just happens to be the God that happens to live here, so we have to figure out how to make him happy. They're not thinking, huh, the God of the Bible sent some lions. Maybe we should pay some attention here and not mess with the God who sends lions. So the king of Syria was told, the nations that you have carried away and placed in the cities of Samaria do not know the law of the God of the land. And I think it's right that the, the interpreters uh, in the ESV, if you're in the ESV, it's a lowercase g, because they're not thinking this is the God. They're thinking this is a God. He just happens to be the God of the Bible. Therefore, he has sent lions among them, so they're just reporting what happened, and are killing them, because they do not know the law of the God of the land. Then the king of Assyria commanded, send there, one, uh, send there one of the priests whom he carried away from there and let him go and dwell there and teach them the law of the God of the land so that the priests who, had carried away, who were carried away from Samaria came and lived in Bethel and taught them how, to, how they should fear the Lord. We've got a plan. Get one of their shamans or whatever and bring them into the town and have them teach how it goes. And then the lions will stop eating people. It's actually worse than lions eating people what comes next. But every nation still made gods of its own and put them in shrines of the high places of the Samaritan, that the Samaritans had made. Every nation in the cities in which they lived. The men of Babylon made Succoth Benoth. The men of Cuth made Negal. And he begins to talk about all these different things that they do and all these pretend things they do. But listen, in verse 32, they also feared the Lord and appointed from among themselves all sorts of people as priests of the high places who sacrificed for them in the shrines of the high places so they feared the Lord but also served their own gods after the manner of the nations among them who had been carried away. So what they're doing, this happens in uh, places like India a lot right now, and this is why it's difficult to be a missionary there. They say, okay, you know, this is what they do in India, but they didn't use the word Jesus, they were using the word Yahweh. Well, we like him, he's cool. We like him and we don't want to be eaten by lions. But we also like our pretend gods too. So let's just kind of stick them together. Let's just kind of do this thing. And so what develops is the Samaritans, and there are actually Samaritans to this day. There, there are very few, but there are there uh, in the same territory. Very few. Um, what they do is they say, eventually this thing evolves to the point that they say, we believe the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, the books of Moses. We believe Moses. We believe those five books. And we are the true people of Israel. We are the people that those books are about. And those people down in the south, Israel, those guys are fakers. And in fact, they have this whole thing about different priests and wars and fights and people stealing the right things and the wrong things. They really like Samson for some reason, even though he's not the greatest cat in the whole wide world. They only think positive things about Samson. They take the Pentateuch as uh, their book and they say, no, no, we're the right people. 
And so fast forward with me really quick. In fact, we'll just talk about it. Uh, fast forward with me to John chapter 4, starting verse 7. We have this very, very uh, famous now account of this woman at the well, who's a Samaritan. So you can open your Bible to it, and I will give you the, the uh, quick play-by-play. Jesus shows up. They go through Samaria. And in verse, uh, pardon me, in verse 8, we hear that, or pardon me, 9, that, this, that there was a Samaritan woman, and she's surprised that Jesus asks her for a drink. And John goes ahead and gives us this parenthetical statement, for Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. They dislike these people so much that many of the people, at this point in time, another geography lesson, Samaria sits between Galilee in the north and Judea in the south. So usually, the fastest rate, uh, uh, route to get from Galilee to Samaria is to just go, or pardon me, Galilee, Samaria, I wish I had a whiteboard, Galilee, Judea, Samaria. The fastest way to get to Jerusalem, which is in Judea, is through Samaria. There are people who think so poorly of the Samaritans that they go around. And when you go through, you bring, it's like you're camping, you bring all your own stuff, you pack it in, you pack it out, and you don't eat any of their food, you don't drink any of their water. Now, Jesus gets into this conversation with this woman, and she's like, why are you talking to me? And he says, I'm thirsty. And, and she's like, but I'm a Samaritan, and you're a Jew. What are we doing here? And that might also be Judean, by the way. That word goes both ways. But anyways, she's, she's talking to him, and he says, go call your husband. Maybe you know the story. If you don't, it's wonderful, and you should read it before we have a picnic this afternoon. He says, go and call your husband. And she says, I don't have a husband. And then he says, you're right, you don't have a husband. You've had five husbands, and the guy you're living with right now isn't your husband. And then we often read this wrong. Because then she says, wait a second. Should we be worshiping at, in Jerusalem or our mountain? Their mountain is this mountain that's fun to say. It's called Mount Gerizim, which you might know from the Old Testament. They think that's where the ark belongs. That's where everything goes. And Jesus says, neither. You're going to worship everywhere. Now, when you read this interaction, a lot of people say, look, she's trying to change the subject because she's talking to him about her boyfriend or whatever. He's not. She actually hears what he's saying. If you, if you get familiar with what the Samaritans are up to, she hears what he's saying. She sees that, she, that he has pierced her soul. And the Samaritans were waiting for this cat called Techev, which is also fun to say, but is a messianic, Christ-like figure that they are also waiting for. They get him wrong. But it's sort of a, a shadow of, of, when you read it, you're like, yeah, that's kind of Jesus-y. It's not, but I see what you're saying. So all of a sudden, she meets this prophet who pierces her soul, and she wants to know, are you this Samaritan Messiah we're looking for? And Jesus has better news for her, doesn't he? No, I'm not the Samaritan Messiah you're looking for. I'm God's Messiah who's coming to get you. And this is why she runs off to town. And this is why she tells everybody, hey, I've met this guy, and he's the one. And he goes to the town, and they rejoice. But it's still shocking for the disciples there. So here we are. We're back in Acts chapter 8. And we're with these people that everybody thought were kind of creepy. I, I don't know another word for it. They don't think well of them. They don't write well of them. They talk about them in a very inhuman way. They don't talk about them as image bearers of God in Second Temple literature. And here we are, 
Philip is here, but there's the, the groundwork that is laid. They have the Torah. Uh, they're looking for a Messiah. And Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ, the Messiah. Why is this a big deal? Well, Acts chapter 1, Matthew 28. Matthew 28 tells us, go therefore and make disciples of everybody who lives in Jerusalem. It doesn't say that. It says, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. We're in Acts chapter 8. In Acts chapter 1, we were told that, that this thing, this gospel thing was going to go out. And we're all the way here in Acts chapter 8. And for the first time, we really hear about someone in a very serious way living out the Great Commission and stepping onto, if you will, enemy soil. Moving out where they belong. This is the first time they do it. Now, here's the thing. Jesus told us this wonderful truth that he was going to build his church and the gates of hell would not prevail against it. Now here's the thing about the gates of hell. What is happening in that metaphor? Gates don't charge you. You charge gates. Right? Gates don't move. Jesus is painting an image of the church going forth. Now be careful I do not want you to go build a battering ram outside after the sermon today. The way the church charges the gates of hell is by loving our enemies and praying for those who persecute us. The way the church charges the gates of hell is by being like Jesus and laying our life down for others. It's loving people while they're still our enemies. Praying for those who persecute you. Turning the other cheek. Sharing the gospel. And pushing the truth. Pushing back the darkness. And bringing the gospel where it needs to go. Now the gospel needed to go to Samaria. But not just there. It needed to go to the ends of the earth. Friends, we are not there yet. There are still unreached people groups. Don't forget it. But also don't forget that God has sent you here to the great state of Washington, which I do believe is the best state in the whole wide world. I've lived here my entire life. I love it here. Uh, but it is also a very spiritually dark place. You have been sent here at the gates of hell to push back the darkness and to preach the truth of Jesus that Jesus saves sinners from death to life. And listen. Listen. Listen to what happens when Philip preaches the Christ. And the crowds, with one accord, paid attention to what was being said by Philip. Because they're probably like the woman at the well. The, the pump is primed, so to speak. They, they ha, they're looking for a Messiah and they have the Pentateuch, but they're also worshiping these pretend gods. And there's a bunch of junk that has to go. And we'll see some junk go in a minute. Said by Philip, when they heard him and saw the signs he did, He's doing miracles. We're told about them in verse 7. For unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in the city. Philip's entering into deep pagan, pretend God, worshiping territory, casting out demons, and God is on the move. So despite the fact that he's going into this place that seems like there should be a lot of opposition both from the people and even from Satan himself, the darkness is pushed back. And don't think that's because Philip's so great. Think, remember that it's God who is so great. Verse 9, but or and. 
I'd say and there. Verse 9, and there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of uh, Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him from the last to the greatest, saying this man is the power of God. And that might actually be an appropriate place to say little g God, or you know, they, I think they're probably thinking of the Samaritan construction of God still. Well, they're thinking, uh, they, you know, there it is. God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. Don't think kids' birthday party. This is satanic power that he is utilizing to make great the name of pretend gods. Okay? This is scary stuff. I think sometimes, and maybe not so much in the Northwest, but sometimes when I act with brothers and sisters who I love dearly, part of the family, and other parts of the country, we can be so modernistic about things that we don't really think about Satan. We don't really think about his work. We don't really think about what he is up to. We don't really take him very seriously. We don't really take what we would typically call supernatural things very seriously. I find that my friends, however, who are on the mission field, who have seen... I have friends who like, don't believe in anything, who have seen things. They're like, I don't believe in anything, but man, I saw this thing. By anything, that's probably a wrong statement. I have Christian friends who are not quick to assign supernatural happenings to the reality in which we live. And then they say, but I did see this one thing this one time. And they explain it and you're like, the thing turned into a what? And a what? And they're like, I, I don't know what to do with it. I just saw it. And I don't think those things usually happen, but I did see it. So, moving on, right? That's usually what they do. They say, moving on. Satan is real. He hates you and he wants you to die. We live in the Northwest. Uh, Native American spirituality, sweat lodges, tarot cards, Ouija boards, you name it. These things are not a joke. These things are not a joke. They are not pretend. Now, sometimes things in the you know, New Agey realm, they, you know, some pretend stuff happens there, right? I'm not saying it's all 100% bona fide. But either way, when you're getting in with that stuff, you're aligning yourself with Satan, which, by the way, is not a place you want to be. There's one God, his name is Jesus, period. Everything else is Satan. Every pretend God that everybody worships outside of here is satanic, period. That is what the Bible says, that is what we believe, and we need to be very careful. That is normative for the Scriptures. Did you notice that Luke, doesn't, Luke the physician, by the way, doesn't say tricks, he says magic? But when they believed Philip as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Verse 13, even Simon himself believed and after being baptized, he continued with Philip. After seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. He actually has, at least to some degree, a category for the miracles and signs that we see being performed at the hands of Philip, right? He's not opposed to the idea that miracles happen. He's just been doing them satanically, right? It's interesting also that he begins to pal around with Philip. Verse 14, Now when the apostles of Jerusalem heard 
that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. Now, something interesting is happening here and something that's honestly taken out of context a lot. Uh, This is what is sometimes called Samaritan Pentecost. We'll see in Acts chapter 10, we have Gentile Pentecost. When Peter has his argument with God, uh, when God says, hey, Peter, there's nothing unclean anymore. And Pete says to God, God, I've never eaten anything unclean. God says, you can eat bacon now. And he says, God, I don't eat unclean things. I don't eat bacon. It's a bit of a paraphrase, but it's about what happens. Cured meats are not technically mentioned in the passage. But unclean animals such as pig would have been a top, pig and rabbit actually would have been a top thing in the mind there. Peter says to God, I don't eat unclean stuff. And God says to Peter, Peter, I'm God. I get to tell you what's clean and unclean. And then it says in Acts, Luke inclusive, he does it three more times. Or three times total. It might be three times total. It might be three more times. Needless to say, Peter doesn't take the cue and keeps arguing with God about it, which, by the way, shows us that we're all taking off the old man and putting on the new, right? This is the other side of the resurrection, and Peter is still Peter, which, hey, that's good news for us all, okay? So what's happening here, uh, and, and most people think this way, so the, the Spirit has been has descended on, uh, on the Judeans and the, and the Hebrew people uh, here at, at Pentecost, those who have believed. And then, and then it seems that in Acts, because it isn't talked about anywhere else in the Bible, uh, this isn't something we do today, that both as the gospel geographically moves forward into Samaria and into this sort of quasi-Jewish people group, the apostles actually come and lay hands so that they receive the Spirit. as this great confirmation. Hey, these people who we used to think were not good people, they are now part of the family. And this is the same thing that happens with the Gentiles. We're Gentiles, so it's already happened, right? We are now people who are indwelt by the Spirit. If you're a Christian, you don't need a, what, are, what sometimes people call a second blessing experience or, or whatever. Uh, you're indwelt by the Spirit. We believe in the filling of the Spirit. God sometimes puts some wind in your sail. Sometimes God moves in your life in a particular way. Uh, but you don't need to have someone like do, do a thing, right? Does that That's the technical term, by the way. Do a thing. Just to explain what's happening here. Because sometimes people take this out of context and and people ask you, have you had this experience? You need to have this experience. You're not really totally a Christian. That's, that's That's not what the Bible teaches. Stay with the text. Verse 16, For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Uh, then they laid hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. Verse 18. Now when Simon saw the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands. Oh. Sometimes when you get to a text, you almost don't want to read it out loud because it's it just... I mean, this is sad stuff. He offered them money. Saying... Give me this power also so that anyone on whom I may lay hands... Now, notice the word anyone there. He doesn't say, let me join the apostolic ministry. Let me go and lay hands on Christian people. He says anyone. Give me the power. On whom I lay my hands and they may receive in the Holy Spirit. Peter said to him, may your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. Here's a sad reality. 
Simon is the guy who you would have had a big barbecue for, who would have burned his magic books, uh, and everybody would have celebrated, and we would have put him in Puget Sound, and we would have lifted him up, and then we would have made a video of him, and put him on the screen, and on the internet, so everyone can say, look at this big giant sinner who got saved by Jesus. I would honestly like more videos like that of people who have lived their whole life with Jesus and don't remember meeting him, that we would say, look, look at the grace of God. What an exciting testimony. Look at the faithfulness of Jesus. Never call it a boring testimony, by the way. It's not a boring testimony. It's a sign of God's covenant faithfulness to you. By the grace of God. We should celebrate all of them. I want the video. I want, I don't want, actually, I don't want the video. I'm not the video guy. But like, I sort of, you know, in, the, in that sense, I want the video of everybody. I want to celebrate everybody. There's something to celebrate here in everybody with what God has done. But sometimes the guy you make the video of and have the barbecue for and burn the magic books quickly falls back into the place that he was already at. He falls back into his pagan thinking and framework. And he approaches the Holy Spirit like his pagan magic. Outside of the Gospel, everything is transactional. I do this so I can go to nirvana. I do this so good things will happen to me. I do this so I can be happy. I do this so I can have my best life now. I do this so people will like me. I do this so I don't have to be lonely. I do this so this. I do this, I do that, da, 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 da. Right? The Gospel is unique in the world of all things because the Gospel is that God takes undeserving people who are sinners and who are actually operating against Him and saves us from ourselves and from our sin and we can take no credit for anything He has done in any way, shape, or form. There is no transaction. Or if there is a transaction, it's Luther's great exchange. Jesus took my sin and what I deserve and I get what He deserved out of the deal. But that's not much of a transaction on our part. Simon is approaching this transactionally. I will give you some money and you will give me some power. Right? Uh, Name in the Syrians, the classic. And if you have the Sally Lloyd-Jones children's Bible, uh, the story that has been buried down in 2 Kings 5 uh, has been kind of pulled out. I'd really encourage you to read it. Uh, we don't have time to go there today, but 2 Kings 5, Naaman the Syrian, he works for this king, uh, and the Saddle of Jones, by the way, gives you the like, truncated haiku version of the story. But essentially, Naaman's a Syrian. Uh, he's, he's, he's a general in an army. Uh, they've wrecked shop on the people of God, taken some of them as slaves. He gets some kind of skin disease. Saddle Jones says it's, a, it's leprosy. It doesn't say that in the Bible, just for the record, but I'm not here to talk about Sally and her Bible. It is a great kid's Bible, by the way. Um, anyways, Naaman the Syrian packs up his stuff. He gets a letter from the king that says, I am great. He puts on his armor in case the king of, uh, of the people of God want him to go kill a dragon or something. Uh, he brings lots of money. Uh, so he brings his reputation. He brings his uh, armor for adventures so he can do something. He brings his money. He takes a trip to Israel. He goes to the king and the king says, I can't help you. I'm just a king. Life and death, that's in the hands of God. I'm not the guy for you. You should probably go talk to Elisha. 
funny, Elisha sends a servant, everybody. It's always servants who talk to the guy, which are really demeaning for him as a Syrian king, but that's, that's another sermon for another day. But it's Wizard of Oz, right? Like He shows up to do an adventure so he can get something out of the deal. Simon here, the transaction is money. Naaman the Syrian, he brings it all. Money, armor, reputation. I've got a letter from the king. I've got a good resume. I'm solid. I've got experience. Uh, I have a LinkedIn profile that's really awesome. And you should hire me out of my skin infirmity. Right? This is pagan. This is pagan. God, I will do this so you will do this. Pagan. God, I will force your hand by... God, I did this. You owe me. Hear me right now. This is the good news of the gospel. God owes you nothing and everything you have is a gift. That is the gift of the gospel. Simon didn't get that. And he reverts back to his pagan ways. Verse 21. You have neither part nor lot in this matter. By that he means the gospel. For your heart is not right before God. Now we'll get there in a second. You have questions. We'll get there. You say he doesn't get to be part of the gospel even though he sinned? Yes, we'll fix it. Peter's going to fix it. Don't worry. He didn't break it. You just got to let the guy finish his sentence. Repent. Oh, there it is. Right? Right now, you are wrong. Get right. Repent. He doesn't say you're done. He says knock it off. Repent. Turn. Turn, therefore, of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord if possible. Now, Peter is the guy who's there at the rich young ruler. Lord, if, if he can't get into heaven with his reputation and his money and his transaction, how are we going to get to heaven? Well, with, what, with man, it is impossible. Your transactions will not get you there. But with God, anything is possible. So he knows it's possible and he says it, but he's also sticking it to him. If possible, the intent of your, uh, intent of your heart may be forgiven. For I see you're in the gall of bitterness. Now that's a Hebrewism meaning that it's like there's been a poison planted in his heart that has grown up in his life. He has seen the world and life and God in an incorrect way. And so he's operating in this transactional way and there is a bitterness clouding his heart and clouding his mind. And in the blood of iniquity, and in so doing, in, in operating out of this pagan way, he is in sin. And Simon answered, pray for me. This is amazing, right? Right here, right now. What's his response? I'm wrong. Right? You're right. That wasn't what I should have done. I shouldn't have tried to buy the power of the Holy Spirit from you. Which, you just kind of wish you could have been there. Man, Simon, don't. And Simon answered, pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, that's, uh, that's the apostles, preaching the gospel. Notice that this whole section has uh, bookends. Preach the gospel, preach the gospel, well, preach the word, preach the gospel. To many, village, many villages of the Samaritans. Now you said, well, I thought they were supposed to go. I thought persecution sent people out and they were supposed to do the things. Well, yeah, and sometimes you've got to have headquarters somewhere. The apostles happen to be operating out of Jerusalem. We're actually told up above that the apostles are the only people who actually have the guts to stick around when everyone's being thrown in jail. So they're using Jerusalem as their base of operations. They're clearly not afraid to come up and rejoice in Samaria. So just a couple of things I think we need to see out of this. God moves despite opposition, right? Persecution 
actually snuffs stuff out. That's why people do it. It did not stop the Gospel. Not only did it not stop it in Judea, it didn't stop God from pushing it out on into Samaria. Opposition does not stop the Gospel. God moves despite the human factor. Apparently when they heard, go to the nations, I don't know what they thought. Because it's the first time in chapter 8 they're going to the nations. right? They're now being obedient. Philip's being obedient. Now God's working with them. And God, what evil intends for evil, God intends for good. God uses the persecution to prod them along. And there's great joy. God moves despite contextual difficulties. And here I kind of mean the culture or the people that you're surrounded by. right? Everything from a human point of view said the Samaritans should have rejected Philip. Everything says that they should have said, no, we're not interested in your Hebrew stuff. We're not interested in your Hebrew religion. We're not interested in your Jesus. We're interested in Teheb and worshiping at Mount Gerizim. Everything says that that's how it should have gone down from a human point of view. It doesn't stop God. God moves despite logistical difficulties. It is a hard thing to be a refugee. It is a hard thing to be kicked out of your home and and to go to a place you don't know for the purposes of preaching the gospel. It doesn't stop God or his plan. And God moves despite what I would say is a wrong view of reality. So remember, this story's got two, it's kind of bookended. We forgot about him because he got introduced, Russell introduced him. We didn't talk about Saul, who will later be called Paul. Uh, but the reason they're running is because of, really, you know, because of him and people like him who actually think they're serving God. They think they're doing God a favor by persecuting the church. God's moving despite there are people who think they're serving God. God's moving despite a guy like Simon who's continuing to see things in a pagan way. Now, as we think about this in our own lives, we want to be careful here. Sometimes if you're not careful. Sometimes you can say, okay, now let's talk about this in our own life. Let's talk about the implications for us in our own life. But I want to be clear. The implications that come from here are principles that we can draw. There's a bridge being drawn to right here, right now. But the things here come from these principles that are here in Acts. But I just want to be clear as a preacher. It's not, what I'm saying here is is generated from the text. But it doesn't say in verse 3, blah, blah, blah. And you need to do this when you're, with your own Bible reading, right? So when you're reading Acts, don't just say, hey, that's a nice story. You say, what is the theological thing that's happening? What is he showing me about God? And because he's showing me things about God, what are the implications for my life here in 2018? Well, they're the same things that we just talked about. God moves despite opposition. There might be opposition in your life to you following Jesus or you preaching the gospel or you sharing your faith or any other thing you're doing. God moves despite those things all the time. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. God moves despite the human factor. You think you've got your plan. You think you've got everything worked out. And God's going to walk with you in your plan and your desires. And God says, no, I have a different plan. No, I have, we're going to do something different, right? We can only know the desires of our heart. We need to follow God in all his plans, Right? So despite the fact that the disciples didn't get it, and sometimes you don't get it either, sometimes God has a, and to be frank, every time I've prayed about something and I wanted God to do something in some way, He always does something better, but not the way that I want it to be done. And it usually shows me again and again who's God around here and who's not. Not God. 
God moves despite contextual or cultural difficulties. I don't know what's going on at home. I don't know what your neighbor said about you in your cul-de-sac. I don't know what's happening at the PTA meeting or at work or at the playground. But even if you feel like God has, has left you, he's got you and he's got it, right? God moves despite logistical difficulties. This might be an extremely trying season for you. God has not left you alone. God takes things that seem impossible and He loves to work with that. Logistics are not a problem for God. And God moves despite wrong views of reality. There may be people in your life who think they're doing God's work in your life. That's lovely, isn't it? Who, who think they get what God is doing in the universe better than you do and you need to listen to them and that even creates difficulties for you. And to be frank, there might be places in your life where you are not seeing things correctly. Maybe your transaction's not money. Maybe it's something else. But the reality is if we're dealing with people who love Jesus, we just need to be framed around the gospel. There's a way to come back to a sobriety, and that's through His Word. Because that's reality. God is moving. God has moved in history to save sinners from death to life. He's moving in history, calling a people unto Himself. And this is a gift of God's grace to us. If you are not a Christian, you are in here today. Today is the day. Repent and believe. You might come in here like Saul, who was religious and had everything put together and needed to be saved. That's coming. Spoiler alert in Acts. And you need to see the Gospel and the good news that you can't earn God's love by the right things you do. And maybe you come in here and you are being a transactional in a pagan way. Maybe you're making sacrifices to some pretend God. Maybe you're doing something in your life thinking that God owes you something. Well, today's the day to Repent. And if you're, in a, if you're a Christian and you're in here today and you say, you're right, I am being transactional. I do think God owes me for that thing. I did, you know, I did that thing and God didn't do the thing. Repent. Today's the day. There's way more better things for you. Way more better things for you. Way better things for you than a transactional relationship with God. It's His grace poured out on you. And if this is not you, if you're a Christian and you're, you're more mature and you're down the road, how are you going to give of yourself to help other people follow Jesus? What, what, what opposition are you pretending is in your way that isn't real that you need to get out of your way to help other people follow Jesus? Let's pray.